about God's word. And the one thing I want to tell you about what I'm going to say here is that none of this is original to me. I've been very blessed by being able to research many very gifted theologians. And so I just give you a concise version of all that the Lord has blessed me with. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we approach your throne of grace asking for that hearts be softened and that ears be opened in order to hear what you have so richly provided for us to learn in your word. And I pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, ladies, let's open up to Thessalonians 3, chapter, uh, up to chapter 4, verses 12, 1 to 12. So, faith is limited by how large your knowledge of the truth is. So as your knowledge grows, so does your faith and trust. Paul was Thessalonians' source of truth, and he had a great joy in living and in them living their faith. Someone has rightly said, and I quote, Christianity is shoe leather faith. That is, it affects daily life. It is a walking faith, it's a working faith, and it's a living faith. The religions of the world are not like that. And while it's true that any system of belief should affect a change in the way one lives life, it is also true that a false, false religion cannot transform a person. And since no false religion can transform a person, no matter how high their ethical standards might be, they cannot really be attained. Only in Christianity there is the power of God to transform a life so that what we believe can literally become the way we live. You see, we have a, sh a shoe leather faith. What it, we believe touches the earth. It is obvious what kind of Christianity, what kind, what kind of Christianity would it be that allows a system that didn't impact your life. Christianity has always been eminently practical. It shows up in the simplest attitudes, the most mundane acts of life, as well as the profoundest thoughts and deeds." Unquote. Chapter 2 of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians tell us that the church in Thessalonica was Paul's hope and it was his joy. He was thankful for them, and he was encouraged by them, and he felt a affection for them. Now, in chapter 3, he's now concerned with what makes Paul, we get, we get to be concerned with what makes Paul such an effective pastor to develop such a church. Some of the false teachers had arrived after Paul had left, and they had, and Paul wanted to have his church know what to make of an effective pastor. And what was that? What makes an effective pastor? Integrity. Integrity is what a pastor says, what he does, and what he is. Verses 1 to 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, 
so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul feels an intense separation from them. He wants them to know how he feels by giving them seven elements of a true pastor's heart. The first one being he has affection for his people. And that's seen in the verse 1. Paul had limited communication with his church, but he did have a deep desire to be with them, but he was hindered by Satan. He is less concerned for his own difficulties than their growth, and he has a real desire to nurture and protect them. He wants to bring them to full maturity in Christ. By sending Timothy to them, he had hoped to lessen the burden on his heart. Now that is true affection. He had a zeal, had a passionate zeal for their spiritual welfare. Paul also had in another element, unselfishness, seen in verse 2. He sent Timothy to them. It is said that you can tell whether someone cares about you by what they'll sacrifice to meet your needs. Paul had no real worthy earthly goods. The best he had were friends. He cared deeply for them, so he sent them the best he had to meet their needs. He sent them Timothy. It meant hardship for him. It meant loneliness. But you see, God gave us his best gift. He gave us his son. Jesus gave us his best gift, his death, and then the indwelling spirit. Now, are you willing to give your best to supply the needs of another? Because thinking about this, it brings us to the next element of the pastor's heart, compassion. Why send Timothy? Well, we see that, we see that in verses 3 to 4. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction so that when it, when it comes to pass, as, as you know. This was a good church, but it was a baby church, and it was suffering persecution. Paul had compassion for this church. He wanted to strengthen their faith. Paul recognized that you need a firm foundation to apply it to your life. You see, strength builds confidence you need to when you need when your faith is tested. We are all destined for affliction, but the tests can cause you to waver. Paul wants to prepare them for it, so we need we too need to prepare as so not to be blindsided. Paul was an every sense a true pastor. He had integrity. We have talked about a pastor's affection, his unselfishness and compassion for his people, but he also needs protectiveness of his people. For this reason, that's in verse 5, for this reason when I could endure it no longer, I, sent to, I also sent to find out about your faith. For Fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul wanted to protect his flock. A faith tested is a faith validated. He had a watchful eye, and so to protect them, 
he sent Timothy. This, he hoped, would protect them from the wolves he knew would come after he left. In my research, I found this informative. Satan uses three approaches to your faith and your trust in God. He tries to keep you from believing. But if you believe, he tries to choke it out. And if that doesn't stop you, then he schemes to weaken it with temptation. A good pastor is a protector. He tries to protect you from the temptations that are coming. Paul's words in verse 5, For fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. He felt the same when he wrote to the Galatians and to the Philippians. And this thought brings us to the next element. Paul delighted in his people, and that's in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Here it tells of what Timothy saw in, Thessalonican, in the Thessalonican church when he returned back to report to Paul. Their faith was real, their faith was great, and they were obedient in the face of affliction. It also included a note to address their personal loyalty, since he was concerned about the untruths being said about him. The Corinthians had turned against him, but in verse 7, what was important to Paul? It states, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress, distress and affliction, we were comforted, comforted about you through your faith. He was comforted and strengthened by them. A pastor's delight is in his people, the loyalty of his people, and the fellowship of his people. Verse 8 sums it all up. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. He says, stand firm, stand fast. It's a refusal to retreat under pressure. How, long is your, how strong is your faith to stand firm, stand fast under trials and temptations? We may not have the persecution this church had, but we do have our own personal trials. Are you in the word daily to grow in knowledge and then and that builds up strength it builds confidence in temptation. This church had the strength, that, and that brought Paul to the sixth element of a pastor's heart, gratitude for his people. Verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? Paul praises and thanks God for these people and their faith. These praises and thanks lead directly to the next element of a pastor's heart, intercession for his people, which is verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul prays day and night. He prays fervently earnestly, and he prays with focus. What does he pray for? Fellowship. 
he says, to see your face, to complete them. He says, to complete what is lacking. Jesus is the role matter, Matt, is the role model of a pastor or shepherd. Paul was called by one commentator an under-shepherd, likewise modeling unselfishness, compassion, delight, gratitude, and prayer. Paul concludes this section by launching into prayer, which is verses 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father himself and the Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So what does he pray for? Well, first, he is concerned about their spiritual growth in faith, hope, and love. He jointly addresses both God and Jesus. He places God as Father and Jesus as Lord on the same equal level. He uses a Greek singular verb to address two distinct persons. Little hint of the Trinity there. Paul wants what every pastor wants, to see his people's faith grow in maturity, their path to be smooth by asking God, please deal with Satan for them. You see, to walk by faith, you need to know the truth so that your truth can trust, so your faith can trust the truth. You can't trust what you don't know. God shows truth at work in your life so that your faith grows even more. Please reread your journals. There you see God at work. It will increase your faith. You will find a greater confidence in God, and you will have a higher trust in God's sovereignty. You now can find joy in your trials, which increases your obedience. And I feel that that's a win-win situation. So what does Paul pray for next? He prays that they have a prospering love. Flowing out of truth and growing faith is love. Love is the evidence of growing faith. The more you trust God, the more you walk by faith. The more you demonstrate your love through faith for God, the more that that love overflows to everyone around you. That's in verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So how do you know if your love is growing? Well, you have less personal preoccupation with your problems. You keep giving sacrificially. You have a greater sensitivity to the lostness of all those people around you. And you develop a heart of compassion. We know that God did answer Paul's prayer because he, he even mentions it in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. His answer to prayer. 
Now the culmination of Paul's prayer gives us another request of God, purifying hope. He starts with truth, then moves to faith, and that moves to love, and that finally moves to hope, which is verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He wants to establish their hearts so that they have a firm, a strong, and an immovable resolute heart that can withstand temptation. Both his and our hope is to be pure at the coming of our Lord Jesus, which we hope will be soon. Our motivation should be to be ready for his coming, that and the Bema seed of God. Knowing there is accountability, you know, that should purify your life. Now, we are currently drowning in a barrage of sexual iniquity in this nation, and they seem to be really enjoying it. But most don't care about anybody's sexual sin because everybody views it as a private matter. We as a nation are now comfortable with that. And that is really sad. Those that are pure, honest, devout, and faithful are considered an oddity. Some even view you as an enemy. Very sadly, sin seems to be promoted to the point of we no longer have absolutes, we no longer have standards, we no longer have rules. Sin is promoted even without consequence. Well, this is not new. We just reinvented it. The world looks at sin as part of normal life. In Paul's time, Corinth had taken sexual immorality to the fullest level of depravity, so much so that they needed five different words to define the different forms of sexual sin. Now, that's pretty sad. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 states, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, or homosexuals. Corinth had temple prostitutes. How unbelievable is that? But then verse 11 tells us, Such were some of you. But you were washed. You have been sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now, this is a personal plea by Paul to all believers to maintain sexual purity. And so we begin chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 and 2. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in our Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus that you as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you excel still more for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus verse 3 tells us exactly what he's talking about it says for this is the will of God your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual sin is a huge problem because the desire is strong. Temptation is compelling 
and society is unbelievably corrupt. You see, there is no shame. And at the time of Paul, or even now, there is no shame. But for us, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us because the church is not to live in that world. What these sins were in the world of Thessalonica, we aren't told, but we do know that they existed and that Paul wants to address them. The Thessalonians had been taught to abstain from sexual immorality, and verse 3 makes it clear that it was a command to do so. He is talking about sanctification, to be separated from sin, to lead a ongoing separate living world living from the world that is around you. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own veg vessel in sanctification and honor. Hebrews 12, 4 tells us to pursue per sanctification and stay away from sin. Well, how far is that? Well, far enough to remain holy in thought and deed however far it takes you to have complete abstinence, because that's the standard. That differs to each one of us. Now, physical love and physical fulfillment is a gift from God, but it should be combined to the limits that are set in Scripture. God will judge those who define the limits that he set in his word. In this epistle, Paul is addressing believers and this present problem in the church. Our bodies are me members of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. You see, believers can fall into these sins, desecrating the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, Many seem not to care about sexual immorality, and it has become more and more acceptable as time goes on. Those whose daily life pattern is immoral, it, they are not real believers. But Paul is here talking to real believers here. He is telling them not to fall prey to this, to be separate, live your lives separate from the world. What Paul is teaching here is also God's will for you. He wants you to be the light in the darkness of this world. So that leads, gives us two questions. How do I keep this command? Verses 4 to 6. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in a manner, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. The sexual revolution has been successful. Sex is now become a necessity, even without restriction. Further, it is even looked upon as entertainment. Live for the moment. Throw out delayed gratification. Sex has even become some person's God. But our true, our true living God looks as this as a devastating sin and a sin that requires death. 
Sadly, most churches do not want to deal with this in church discipline, and churches have become comfortable with it. Yet God requires us to be sanctified, set apart, holy. You are made in his image. He wants you to be holy. We have seen God's command. So how do we keep that command? Remember that we are new creatures in Christ at salvation. We can fall into sin, but we can't live habitually in that sin. We live in a sex-crazed culture so we need seven principles to maintain sanctification. One, do not let your body control you. Verse 4 states that we have enough knowledge to, con to con have control over your body. This is an issue for both men and women. It is about controlling yourself so that you're using your body to honor God. So how do I do that? Well, self-control is the issue here. It is critical in getting your spiritual life under control. Romans 6.12 tells us that your body belongs to God. It was purchased at salvation. Flesh no longer dictates your life. You see, we died and we were born to a new life and a new Lord. So beware of your identity. Be aware of to whom you belong. You were given the power of the Holy Spirit indwelt in you. Galatians 5 tells us to walk in the Spirit and yield to Him. He is the one that produces godliness and sanctification in your life. He gives you the power to produce this. You must know the truth, be con convicted by the truth, and then the Holy Spirit provides the power for you to obey the truth. It's important to, fulfill, to fill your mind with the truth available in the Word of God so that it controls how you think, and that thinking leads to how you control your body. So don't play with emotions. Don't play with desires. Stay apart. You are to conduct yourself in sanctification. Do not bring immorality into the body of Christ, for it dishonors both the Lord and His church. So control your body is number one. And now we'll go to number two. Don't act like pagans. I like that. I found that in one of my resources. I had to quote that. Don't act like pagans. And it said, it said, he said, don't be part of the crowd saying everybody's doing it must be okay. So let's refer to verse five. Not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. You are different not in lustful passion, an overwhelming, compelling feeling where emotion takes over. You are, that's out of control craving. It is shame to Christ whose name you bear. We expect that of the unsaved. They are in ignorance and they can't stop. They are driven by sin. But you being washed, you cannot act like the world does. It shames God. The next principle is don't take advantage of others. Verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. 
You are not to cross the line. You are not to defraud others. You are not to use someone to fulfill yourself at their expense. That leaves us with a question, why? Well, there are three reasons not to do this. First, God's vengeance, Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Well, what kind of vengeance? Well, it could be anything. He has lots of things at his disposal. It could be disease. It could be devastated marriage, divorce, absence of blessings, or even death. He has an immense latitude in judgment. Sexual sin disregards God's law. It disregards his holiness. It ignores his will. It defies his complaint commands and it rejects his love it flaunts his mercy and grace it's selfish and ungrateful and deserves judgment but we us have been washed we've been sanctified here's the end of verse six just as we also told you paul told them and warned them to fear god he wants you to delight in God, but also fear him. Fear him in the fear context and fear him in the awe context. What bring, that brings us to the second question of why. Verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God called us to be pure. It's God's purpose. And are we to complain? Well, verse 8 deals with that. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. That means that you're now arguing with God. Picture that. I'm going to argue with God. And if you complain, that's really rebellion. Because God said, God said because Paul says, God gave us the Holy Spirit to avoid this. We have been told by Paul in verses 3 to 8 that God's will is for us to be sexually pure. His attention now changes in verses 9 to 12. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here, Paul wants our sanctification to show up in the simple duties of daily life. As I quoted in the beginning, this is shoe leather stuff. Sanctification touches the very basis of our lifestyle. Studies shows as a nation, we've become a nation of biblical illiterates, lacking in knowledge of what's actually in the Bible and thus limiting our com the commitment to apply it to our daily behavior. Saying you are a Christian means you ought to live it. In these verses, Paul is calling the Thessalonians to four basic exhortations. Love each other, 
lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. You see, this is not new stuff. He had told them this when he was with them. But he felt the need to be reminded. He felt so much so that he even repeats this in 2 Thessalonians. Now, this was a good church who was waiting for Christ to return, and Paul felt the need to correct an understanding. Their enthusiasm of looking to the return of Christ, they were now neglecting their duties of everyday life. Why focus here when you're going there? Now, this was a zealous church. Today, it seems exactly the opposite. All we see is indifference to God's return. So Paul reminds them and us, love each other more. Paul goes from separating ourselves from the world to loving each other. This is brotherly love that is seen in meeting the needs of others. Acts of service. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. You see, love is innate in us because it was given to us by God at your salvation. Verse 9 says you are God taught. Verse 10 says the Thessalonians already practiced this among their brethren. These believers were generous. They showed hospitality, kindness and mercy to those in need. Here, love is seen active in service. But verse 10b, you can do still more. He's urging them to grow, seek perfection, and then tells them to lead a quiet life, verse 11. We are not only to lead a quiet life, but be calm and peaceable in the face of persecution in anticipation of the Lord's return. Next, Paul tells them to mind their own business. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, don't be a busybody. I like that. Don't be undisciplined. There is no place for gossip. Stick to matters that concern you. Paul follows that with what to do next. Work with your hands. Keep busy. The Greek thought this was beneath them. But the Christians are to be workers. God gave that command back in Genesis. He gave that command to Adam and Eve. Paul states that he heard that they had stopped working, and he tells them that this is wrong because in verse 12 it says, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be any need. He's talking about evangelism here. The key to evangelism is not a strategy. It's not something that unfolds in a pamphlet or a tract or an evangelistic technique or a program service. He's talking about the integrity of the life of a Christian who manifests to this world a lifestyle that's filled with love, peace, and tranquility, a privacy and a diligent work ethic. When Christians live in that kind of a life, they have that life in the current world, people are going to say you're different. Again, this is a shoe leather faith. We need to be relevant in today's world. We can't live in a vacuum. Quoting the original author, 
We need to close the gap between our faith and our feet. So let's begin that journey in prayer. We are, Father, your children. We want what pleases you. We are in need of your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness and your strength. We know all of that is at our disposal if we are but obedient. Help us to pursue truth. Choose the right people. Avoid the wrong experiences and fulfill your will. For our sanctification, and you will receive all the glory and the praise. And I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Have a really good week, ladies.